Good morning, everyone. Blessings to you on our fourth Sunday of Advent as we close in on Christmas Day. For those of you who may not know, my name is Jason Lalone, and I get to serve as pastor here at Rogers Park. And throughout December, throughout December, we've been preaching through the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1, which serves as part one of Jesus' resume to the world. Now, just as a resume today is submitted to dazzle a prospective employer with a list of your awesomeness, so also remember, a genealogy was put forth to impress in order to secure one's place and standing in society. But to do that, here's the catch. You're supposed to leave out the bad guys and the bad stuff. But not this resume. It's one of the most truthful that's ever been submitted, which is kind of refreshing if you think about it because most resumes that are submitted to prospective employers today are rather boring Name and address, relevant skills, job experience, education, maybe a few highlights or awards and those ever-important references. And of course, those are meant to draw out conversation by the the interviewer, but on paper, you don't really get a sense that there's been any adventure, that there's been a sense of really living life and a struggle of living life in the real world. That there's any evidence of battle scars or a sense of overcoming. It's just, here's all of my goodness. Ting. But throughout Advent, we've seen that Jesus' resume is full of questionable characters, questionable kings, and questionable conditions. His family tree is full of messy lives, acts of folly, and spiritual darkness and exile which over the span of thousands of years is plenty enough to create a deep and abiding longing for a rescuer, a redeemer, and a ruler who will finally come and make things right. It's the cry of every human heart today, whether they acknowledge it or not. The stage has been set for who God has been pointing to all along. If there's one thing that we've learned over this last month, we've learned to not skim over the seemingly unimportant parts of the Bible in order to hurry up and get to the real action. Because if we slow down, if we read, if we go back and we consider portions of Scripture, such as the names in Matthew's genealogy, we will find treasures. We'll see that for every was the father of, was the father of, was the father of, there's been an abundant outpouring of mercy and grace. By including the true names, the names associated with scandal and unbelief and even failure, by submitting an honest resume with all the grit and grime, what it has done is magnify the faithfulness of God to keep his promises throughout the epic of all of redemptive history. Despite us. God keeps his promises despite us. That is a truth to treasure and to never let go of. For those of you who know it, say it with me on the count of three. One, two, three. God is faithful. One, two, three. God is faithful. Now look at the person next to you and say, despite me. (laughs) 
David Braddock, God is faithful. Kevin Taylor, God is faithful. Lindsay Lalone, God is faithful. And despite me too. That is a treasure to never let go of. When you are in darkness, when you sense you have blown it, when you feel shame, is that God is going to keep his promise to you. Don't ever let go of that, which now brings us to the moment of the king's arrival, what all of God's people have been longing for. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. It's going to be on page 471 of your house Bible. If you're new to turn in the pages of the Bible, that's totally okay. The big numbers are the chapters, and the smaller numbers that follow are the verses. And if you don't own a Bible, or if you know someone who needs a Bible, take one of those Bibles with you out the door today. We're so glad that you're here. We want to at least give you a gift this Christmas of God's precious word, which is the greatest treasure um, we have as a church. I'm not going to ask you to stand, but you'll read, follow along with me for the reading of God's word on the screen if you can see it. That's another reason why I brought you a little closer this morning. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to G Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins, or from their sins. Verse 22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that is Isaiah, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's my theme, which will keep us moving this morning. The king came in this way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We just thank you so much for our intimate fellowship and gathering. It's actually a little bit refreshing this morning just for all of us to be close to one another. Uh, as we hear from you this morning, that's what we come expectant. We come expectant to receive treasure and receive the gift of your word this Christmas. There's nothing like it, for if we have nothing else but if we have you and we have your word, which you've exalted above all things, we have everything. And so, Father, I pray that you'd do a work in our hearts this morning, that you'd help us to see Christmas in a different light, that you would help us to unpack even further, and you give all of us even more and further in depth of insight. That in your providence, that in your sovereignty, before the foundation of the world, you determine that your son 
our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, would come in this way. Oh, God, I ask that you find our hearts humble. May we bow before your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let's kick off in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord saves salvation. The birth of Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the redeemer of the enslaved, the healer of the brokenhearted, the encourager of lost hopes, deliverer from afflictions, and savior of the world took place in this way. First, to a no-name common family. I mean, let's set it straight. If you'd, uh, you think that a long-awaited king would be born into a family of prominence, a family who had a last name, like a Rockefeller or a Kennedy or a Pritzker, a family of the highest class who could pull off the most extravagant of celebrations, someone who could produce the most shine and draw the most attention, but not this king. Instead of princes and princesses, instead of royalty, beauty, and Flamboyant processions, it's Joseph and Mary. No name every day, common people. And poor at that. We know that because when they eventually brought Jesus for his consecration in Luke chapter 2, they gave the minimum offering that the law required, a pair of doves or two small pigeons. But that's the way God does things, right? Right? This is consistent all throughout Scripture. And I don't want us to miss this point because it has very important implications for us. One, to remind ourselves of who we are and to be encouraged that although you may not be much in the world's eyes, you have heaven's attention regardless of your role or your status. And two, That it would cause us to make sure that we are showing love, dignity, and respect to everyone who the world has deemed beneath us. Why? First, as followers of Jesus, that's what we do. Second, you never know, they could be your boss one day. Or your Ruler one day. And third, God has another big reason, which we're going to get to in a second. But first, let's just take a quick scan throughout the scriptures. And this just doesn't take much if you're familiar with the scriptures. Just whipped off this in about a minute and a half the other day. To remind ourselves once again who God calls and who he uses. Abraham. God calls a guy named Abram. He wasn't even had the ham on there yet. Out of obscurity in Ur. Ur, where are you from, Abraham? I'm from Ur. Ur, what? Where's Ur? He calls Moses while he's a fugitive on the run for murder. Getting while he's. Threshing wheat, oh boy, that's thrilling. David, while he's tending sheep, that's smelly. Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, really? Esther, an orphan and adopted cousin in exile. 
A no name slave girl ser- serving as Syrian general in 2 Kings chapter 5 named Naaman. A demon possessed Mary Magdalene. Priscilla the tent maker. How blue collar can you get? Lydia the seller of purple dyes. Romans chapter 16, Rufus's mother. That's all Paul says. It's Rufus's mother. But on the other side said, who had became like a mother to him. How about that? I mean, let's face it. It doesn't get any more common than a gal named Mary, Mary getting married to a guy named Joe. But oh, the glory. 1999, there's a book that came out. I, I, remember, I remember seeing it in the bookstore. And it brought to my attention when I was preparing for this message. And it was called Praying for the 365 Most Influential People in the World. Had Oprah on there. Michael Jordan. Who else did it have on there? Bill Gates. But the book was put together, and however they came up with it, or the 365, so you could pray for one of those influential people each day, which I think is a good thing, right? It was full of PhDs, and, which is great, and politicians, and business leaders, and athletes, and other actors. And it, it, it was a good idea, right? But the whole premise behind the book was that if God got a hold of these 365 influential people, then the world would be turned upside down. And I remember then, it was brought to my attention how I felt then when I was looking at the book and kind of reading through it and asking myself, what's this all about? I was just like, really? Really? (sighs) Peter, fisherman guy. Paul. Hmm, a religious terrorist. All these no names prior when they were called. Very interesting how we think about things. Follow along closely in 1 Corinthians 1 26 through 30, which you might be able to see on the screen above me. This is a memory verse challenge to you, by the way. Hide this one deep in your heart and meditate on it constantly. Brothers and sisters, because we're all family here, brothers and sisters, God is our Father. The person sitting next to you is not your enemy. It's not someone that you need to be bitter at. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Now notice it doesn't say not any of you. It just says not many of you. God does call some of those folks. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, Parker. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, Tiggist. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, Linz. 
and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. In that passage, God is doing his thing in such a way that he's turning nobodies into somebodies and somebodies into nobodies to help us get that it is all about him. And of course it is because we would never do it his way. We don't prize fools. The weak, the lowly, and the despised. But God says, that's my candidate. May God give us, a, give us eyes to see this Christmas. All the smart people, you know, these sharp, you know, these ideas, all these, man, God's got to be using that guy and this gal because they're gifted and strong. Okay. No bragging here. No boasting here. No look at me here. In this way, the king would come in this way. A king born into a no-name common family which has implications for us and how we view others. And even through a miraculous conception, come on, Mark. The second half of verse 18, Mary is found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. Now what I love about this is Matthew gives the account of the virgin birth. When he writes it, he writes it in such a way that it's like me saying, Lindsay went shopping this Christmas. <laughs> of course she did. That's exactly what she does. She shops not only at Christmas, but she shops a lot, right? I mean, she's a great shopper, and that's what she does at Christmas. Lindsay went shopping this Christmas. Yes, she did. But think about it. As he's writing this, there's no, you know, I know this is going to be hard to believe, but the Holy Spirit, um, you know, um, he, he made it so that there would be this baby growing inside Mary. And there wasn't any sexual actions that took place because it was the Spirit who did it. And spirits, especially holy ones, they can't do that with flesh, yeah. Right, you see it. There, there's no stumbling and bumbling here. There's none of that. It's just that's what happened, and it's been confirmed and acknowledged. And remember, further, Matthew's writing as we've what what, what Lee and, and Jamie and Phil have done so well in unpacking these last three weeks. Remember that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and they would have never, and he would have never thought to tell the birth of Jesus in this way. There has already been plenty of fictional stories of heroes being conceived by the intervention of God, such as Hercules. For many, this would have been considered blasphemy right from the beginning of the letter. Just throw it away. Matthew's taking a risk here. 
I mean, he's writing this, kicking it off. It's almost as if he's writing it to make it so you don't believe it. And how about the situation that God has put Mary and Joseph in, Isaiah? They aren't necessarily starting out on a good foot here. There's already an issue in the relationship. Preparation for a godly Christian marriage is supposed to be drama-free. Or at least you're supposed to hide it. But Mary's pregnant before the wedding. And in a shame and honor culture, that would have landed on the side of shame. She would have gotten the scarlet letter. From all outside, from on the outside, all Mary's girls would have been like, her and Mary and Joseph, you know. And from on the inside, Joseph is out of there. Mary must have cheated on him. This is life in the real world, isn't it? I mean, we don't got a whole lot of details here, but it takes the intervention of an angel to get this thing worked out. There's a whole lot of mess going on here, and God has put him right in the middle of it. I mean, how could they ever plan for a gender reveal? The the, the angel already gave the ultrasound. (laughs) Or a baby shower. Oh, that's going to be something. Now, of course, there are a lot of huge theological truths for us to get here as well. One that God, again, always keeps his word. And this is a fulfillment of a promise some 700 years prior. God keeps his word, his promise, even though it's a long time in coming. Two, the virgin birth points to Jesus' divinity. After all, he did end up forgiving sins during doing miracles and rising from the dead. You can't have a resurrection without first having a miraculous conception. God has to be in that. Three, the virgin birth also emphasizes Jesus' humanity. These are the basics, one, two, and three, of the virgin birth. And that he was made like us in every way, yet was without sin, making him the perfect intermediary between God and man. And he could fully atone for our sins. There's a lot to chew on that. Books and books full. But for the sake of time, because my aim is to go a little bit shorter this morning, I think I'm doing okay. I just want us to get something else this Christmas. That if there's something we can existentially learn from the virgin birth, I don't think I've ever used that word in a sermon. If there's one thing that we can existentially get and understand and learn from the virgin birth, it's that God often does his best work in our uncertainties, our head scratchers, And the things that make you go, hmm. The circumstances in our lives that don't fit our controlled and orderly boxes of A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. And please hear me, there is nothing at all wrong with order. Order is a great gift from God. But if you don't have a category for a non-category, you are going to miss out on a whole lot of awe and wonder. 
and you will get shook when things don't work out as you have planned. Do you have that category for God this morning? When things don't work out as you have planned, that you're okay with that. That maybe your plan wasn't his plan. You know, let's face it. I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But I've walked with Jesus long enough to know that he is full of surprises. Yes, it is a blessing when things go as planned. One, two, three. But a lot of life comes at us and has lived in the realm of what's above me on the screen. Can I get a witness? The king came in this way. Jesus is born into a no-name common family through a drama-filled, miraculous conception. And lastly, he is given an unspeakable name. Verse 23, Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now there's a few things I want to draw out here. And the first is how you interpret the meaning of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament's use of the Old Testament text like we have here. And what's fascinating about this is that if you go back to Isaiah chapter 7 where this verse is found, you'll find that God's people are under the threat of takeover and the, this prophecy is given for their future context of exile, which they found, that, found themselves in time and time again. Right? You go throughout the Old Testament, they're just constantly going to exile. You say, why does God always do that to his people? Does God not like his people and does he just, does he just love to torment them? No. But it's because of their disobedience and their commitment and their loyal love back to him and their lack of uh, appreciation for all what, who he was and what he had done for them. So they disobeyed and they strayed. So God would send them into exile. And it was a way to help them to see how bad it was without him as their king. That's why when you're struggling and you're in the muck of sin and things are going bad and it's crappy and you got a bad attitude about others and you're down and you're mad and you're depressed and you're bitter at others, you think, do you think, do you think that you might be the problem? Or you don't have the full story or you just in your, created your own thing. Does anybody know what I'm talking about there? Not that I've never done that. I've never. But we get in those funks and we feel those ways because God, it's a signal to us. You are missing out. Something's off here. And so have a little fun in your little personal exile of misery but the point is, I'm trying to draw you back to me because you're missing out and you're, not, you're forgetting how good I am. And that by repentance and faith, you can trust his goodness and his care and get under that covering again, that blessing. 
That was, an, that was a side note. Now, if we go back to our genealogy, we'll see that Matthew has concluded with God's people again in the context of exile. After the exile to Babylon in verse 12 in the time of Christ, in verse 17, there has been a long period of silence, which we've talked about in these last weeks, which points beyond a mere physical exile to a spiritual one. This is the big point. God's people think they have a problem with Rome, but really they have a problem with him. Just like in Isaiah, Matthew is writing in the context of exile, but people weren't thinking of an Emmanuel, a God with us, deliverer. They were thinking of someone else, a deliverer to rescue them from the empire. Besides, an Emmanuel is nothing short of outrageous. That's outrageous. That would be unheard of. That's an unspeakable name. Even know that there is no greater blessing that could be conceived of that God would dwell with his people continually. Surely it wouldn't be like this. God with us? It's blasphemous on one end and it promotes terror on the other. They knew that God had said to Moses that no one could look upon him and live. They would be consumed by his holiness. This is crazy. This is stupid crazy. And I can say for myself that I don't and we don't feel the weight of what Matthew is writing here on this side of the resurrection. But to those he's writing to then, they would have been shocked and unsettled. As it turns out, this simple story of Jesus' birth isn't so simple. It's just not words on the screen that we just kind of go through every Christmas. It's actually quite a bit bewildering that he would do it in this way. A common family, a miraculous conception, and an unspeakable name. But what would you really expect? We are dealing with God here at Christmas. Not Santa or mistletoes. We are dealing with God here at Christmas. All right, as we get ready to land the plane. Or, because it's the season, land the sleigh. There's a few thoughts I'd like to conclude with regards to the king came in, in this way. It's going back to our points. That Jesus was born into a no-name common family speaks of his approachability. The approachability of Jesus is so precious. He's not a savior king who distances himself from everyday people like us. People who may not have a great name or a great influence or even great morals. But he enters in and he comes close. He's approachable. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Oh, how precious. The friend of sinners. 
You're just a friend of just other Christians. The miraculous conception, that speaks not only of his humanity, that he was made like us in every way, experiencing all of life's joys and trials and sufferings, temptations, but also in his deity that he responded perfectly on every occasion. He always honored the Father in all of his decisions and all of his actions. As has been said in a lot of different kinds of ways, he's like us, but he's unlike anyone we have ever seen. His unspeakable name, Emmanuel, God with us, speaks of his intimacy and companionship. I love this. If you, this is kind of a, if you remember Robert Coleman's The Master Plan of Evangelism. This has just stuck with me throughout the years. When Jesus called the first disciples to himself in Mark chapter 3, it says that Jesus called them so that they might be with him. Isn't that precious? He calls us so that we might be with him. We can be in his presence. We can learn from, we can be encouraged by, we can be comforted in a real relationship. This is what the Christian faith is about. He's with us, he knows us, and he loves us, and we can know and love him too. In Christ, we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is close. There is no story like the Christmas story. All the other religions of the world give their suggestions, their rules, their ideas, their observances to try and help you so you can try to find God except as we know and what we believe Christianity which is the story about God who has come to find us and meet us exactly where we're at. And that humbles the proud. And maybe the elites who think that they have everything that they need. And it gives hope to the downcast. So he lifts up their head. It surely shakes up the self-righteous who think that they're so good compared to other people. And it awakens the spiritually sleepy to consider something beyond this world. And it causes the spiritually indifferent, the, ah, Jesus was a good guy, people, to put their stake in the ground. As C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, and 5,000 other people have said, you can do a lot of other things, or you can do a lot of things with Jesus, such as muddy up the glory of Christmas with other things, but you can't do nothing with him. No name, common family, miraculous conception, unspeakable name, resurrection from the dead, claiming to be God. You can do a lot of things with that, but you can do nothing. You have to do something with Jesus this Christmas. 
Christmas is much more than a birth. It's about an arrival that transforms the lives of those who believe its story. It's about an arrival. He has come and he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word this morning. Thank you for this Christmas story. Father, I'm just reminded. Thank you for your treasure. Your treasure trove of truth. It's so awesome. It's so different. It's so unlike anything that we ever hear about. Or read about. Or what's pursued in this world. It's so upside down and all of its aspects. We bless you for our story. It's incredible. And God, I pray that we take these truths to heart, that you'd magnify the name of your Son, the power of the Spirit, and enlightenment that he gives who resides in us, so that this Christmas we would see you more and more for who you are, that we would worship you as we gather together with family and friends, those who may not know Christ, Oh, God, may Jesus be seen this season, I pray, for us as a church, for our North Rogers Park family, our Breakers family, for our West Rogers Park family, our Rogers Park network, our family of faith up here in the far north side of Chicago. Oh, Lord, may we live the Christmas story. Humble our hearts again, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.